1: You were born in Belfast not long after the end of the Second World War. What was life like for you growing up, Brian? Well, I just was very, very lucky to, to live in a
0: very working class part of Belfast and uh, in, in North Belfast and very close to Crusader's Football Club. So Crusader's Football Club were my team from a boy. And uh, I lived in Pittsburgh Street, which was cobblestones and a, a huge park across the road called Grove Park. So between the street of Pittsburgh Street and the Grove Park, that was the area that I really was reared and lived and as i grew and developed from school I spent all the summer period in that part of the uh, uh, of the field playing and when i look back on it uh, you know i had great parents unbelievable tell parents. me about
1: your mom and dad what were they called
0: well my, my mor- mother was minnie although she was mirianne and uh, my father was alec and uh, they were special um, as as most boys are in Belfast their parents are always the best and I had the best I had a sister called Muriel who was a couple of years younger than me and then a a boy who came much later Ian came about 10 years later so that was a family and uh, all my time I lived in Belfast so it was it was really one of those periods of time when you just enjoy your young life and it's only as I've got older now I've realized how lucky I was and the people that I met the opportunities that I got and I was allowed to live the dream as a kid. And recently we had a, a reunion. I was a Boys Brigade boy. Uh, I loved the Boys Brigade and had a lot of friends in it. And we had a reunion. And uh, one of my friends was saying to me that, you know, in those days there was, you know, no hot water and uh, certainly no bathroom inside. It was an outside toilet. Mm-hmm. And everybody was saying we were underprivileged. But we were having so much fun that we didn't realize we we're underprivileged at all. It was just a
1: fantastic place to be brought up. I loved it. I wonder whether in times to come, social historians will talk about some people now being overprivileged as they grow up. I mean, I bet that causes its own and different problems. Um, did you like school? I love school. I, I was quite a good student.
0: And uh, I think it was important to have a good education. My parents were very much like that. And um, my mother insisted that you know I studied and um, w- went for the different exams. And I was probably in the top three or four in the class. But Never the top person, but uh, what I did, I enjoyed enjoyed the education part of it. Maths was my subject. I love maths, but, uh, but but of course uh, the the sport was there, and uh, the, I was was I played in the playground, and uh, it was just a I just loved my school years, and and I loved I loved the whole area. And when I go back I to see anybody, or I'm my mum and dad have passed away, but when I was going back on a regular basis to see them, I always had a drive down. And uh, went past Pittsburgh Street in the Grove Park, just to keep me grounded.
1: If you're growing up in in the industrial north of England, or in the northeast of England among the miners, or in the the Lowlands of Scotland, or in in, in London in in your generation, I can see how you might aspire, dream of being a professional footballer. If you're growing up in in, in Northern Ireland, was it, it was it realistic? Did you, when did you start dreaming of being a footballer? Well, I think I always dreamt of
0: being a footballer. I mean, my father was a keen football fan. And all the members of his family were all football fans. So, and Crusader was around the corner from me, and of course, I remember the days when, when I used to be, and you got lifted over. But my parents said you must never ask. You weren't allowed to ask anybody. But everybody in the in the road knew you because they came from all the streets. So you used to stand outside the turnstile, and somebody used to say, "Brand, you want lifted over?" So you'd have jumped over, and that's where you went to. No, football was always a passion for me, and I think that in that time and period. When I look back, you're always playing in the street team, or you're playing for the, the school team, or you were just simply playing football. So the winter months, and arguably a lot of the summer, was spent uh, was playing football. So I could never say that that
1: was something that I, I thought you know I might not want to do. I always wanted to play football. Brian, you heard in the first part of the show about your passion for football, um, and you spent the next five years as a young player playing in the very established league in, in Northern Ireland. Tell us about playing for uh, Distillery in Linfield. Well, I, I was a very good young player, and uh, a,
0: a lot of people knew that I was about. And But my father was a very disciplined man and controlled most of the things that I that I did as a young person with regards to education and when I played and who I played for. And uh, I never really wanted to go into the Irish League. I was still enjoying playing with the boys' clubs and the, and the boys' brigade. Uh, and eventually, about four or five clubs came after me wanting to, to sign me. And he said then, and Crusaders were one of them, which was my team. Mm-hmm. And he then made the decision that it was time for me to, you know, progress. And the manager of the distillery at that time was a, a gentleman called George Easton, who the the younger listeners won't remember. But George Easton uh, was a, a very famous manager and played along with Stanley Matthews at Blackpool. And he played a very, he was the Arsene Wenger of his time, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. He played lovely football and he developed players and uh, there was a team called distillery a nice club and uh, funny enough my grandfather was a supporter of distillery so when i signed for distillery i went and signed with them and played a, a year uh, i think a year and a half with them i learned a lot and uh, it took me to another level of football i went from the second team very quickly into the first team and uh, then linfield then who were arguably the biggest club in the country and had a lot of uh, credibility. They'd won a lot of trophies. That you know they were arguably the biggest team, and they came searching for me. And of course, that was where I was going to go to. All during this time, I was still working at my education, and I was still developing that part of my life. Uh, and then when I went to, Linfield they were just simply terrific. A lot of experienced players, and some of the players then, when I look back now, would have been terrific
1: players in England. And people listening to our voices, um, those of you who are either A, under the age of 50, or B, not quite up to speed, and need to listen to the next fact. In 1967, the year Celtic won the European Cup, Linfield reached the quarter-finals. Well, we, we had an amazing run, and Linfield were always very close to
0: winning the league. Uh, we had a terrific run in the competition. We actually played in the quarter-finals against CSKA. And, uh, we had Sofia, put, the Bulgarian side. That's team, the Bulgarian yeah. side, yeah. and they were a very strong unit. Uh, we were never favourites because it was always going to be an, an uphill battle for us but the match at Windsor Park was a fantastic evening. We drew 2-2. I think I scored the first or second goal and uh, we looked as if we had a chance of qualifying. Uh, we went over there to play. We lost 1-0. They were slightly better than us but it was a terrific run and it, it did tell me how good the the players coming out of Northern
1: Ireland at that stage were. And the difference between the CSKA team and the team from Liverpool, CSKA were full-time, um, they were all working for the army, of course, that's but right. they, they were an army team, um, but they had the full power of the Bulgarian state behind them. You were part-time footballers. What were you doing to make a living as well, Brian, at this stage? Well, I was working in computers. There I, were I, no computers in 1966, Oh, there was Brian. computers. You made that up. Yeah,
0: no, no, they were very large. Were they, were, they? <laughs> they, they? didn't fit in your pocket, that's for sure. But no, I worked in computers, and, uh, and to be honest with you, it was a part of my life that my father f- felt that the football was a precarious job and uh, it had a a lifespan that maybe wasn't very long and he wanted to make sure that What
1: exactly were you doing? uh, With computers? Yeah, what were you doing?
0: We were developing them, making them and uh, International Computers and Tabulators were a company big, big company and uh, they made computers Uh, we serviced them and looked after them and, and worked in the electronics end of it not that I was very good, to be honest with you, because it was something that I did because I felt it was the right thing to do because my parents and my father, especially, had thought that was the way to go. And I wanted to have an education, I wanted to have qualifications. But I always had the passion and the desire and love to play football. And it was never, it was always going to be that when I. Completed my my, my my qualifications and and qualified as a, as a on that scale. Then I was going to play football, and that happened. And my father, once I had qualified, he says, "Now you can do as you please. You've got your qualifications. You can carry them with you, and you can have a go at football if
1: and when you get the chance." The season after that defeat in the quarterfinals of the European Cup. Linfield had another famous defeat. They lost to Crusaders. Mm. Um, your team, my team, in the, in, in, you lost in the final of the of the, North, of the, of the Cup in, the, in in the North of Ireland. Um, and there, but just a, uh, an example of the power of that Linfield team. That was your first defeat for 34 games. Of course, trust them to lose in the final. No, to be honest with you, it was uh, the romance of the final for cru-
0: Crusaders. Crusaders were a small club and they're doing so well now. And I had a great love for them because, I mean, I watched them.
1: They're from the from current champions. In yeah, the they're doing, yeah,
0: they're doing unbelievably well. I'm so pleased about them. And uh, Seaview was a special place for me. Seaview was just round the corner. It was it was where I watched the football being played. And and to be honest with you, the, the Crusaders on that day were better were better than us. We just didn't perform and they thoroughly deserved
1: their win um we'll come on to your international career a little later in in its fullness but uh you did make your debut around this time as well december 1968 can you remember it 68 would you believe i replaced or took the shirt off the great george best george about whom we'll talk about a lot later yeah, on too, yeah. one
0: of my favorite players and uh we were playing turkey away and i was in the squad and I was probably being taken along just for the ride. It's it was a cup qualifier. A yeah. world cup qualifier. And uh, George, for whatever reason, uh, didn't make the trip. Uh, we played in Istanbul and I roomed with Pat Rice, of course, the Arsenal player. Uh, Pat came through this, the the under twenty ones with me and then and then the full side. And uh, there was actually the weather was dreadful. The, the rain hadn't stopped. And there was actually talk about the match being not being able to play because of a waterlogged pitch. And they were actually going to move the match from Istanbul to Ankara. And uh, as it was, it went ahead. We played unbelievably well and won the game 3-0. Yeah.
1: Well, a pretty decent team. Pat Jennings was in the team. Terry Neal, yourself, Derek Dugan. We even went out, George. They had some decent players in the team. You won the league title with Linfield in 68-69. I need to talk about about now about the civil unrest and how did it affect the football in Northern Ireland? It seemed to me it was a perfect storm at that time. You had the civil unrest going on, the troubles as people came to call them, plus the arrival of football hooliganism as a real problem um, in these islands. But What was it like playing in Ireland at that time? It only had started during that period of time and 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 we
0: were a little bit isolated from it I've got to admit by what you mean the footballers the footballers and yeah. in, and in my personal life okay, because right. that was something that we never really got involved in sure and uh it was happening it was very sad and it it made me more determined at that stage than that I was going to try and my luck's, uh, in England uh, playing football I felt it was the way I wanted to go and and it was a very sad period of time for me because Northern Ireland is my favourite place Belfast is my favourite city I love going home and the saddest aspect for me was that it was being pulled apart uh, so it was
1: more sadness than anything for me I mean I, I, again my note here says that you played in the 1970 Irish Cup final um, Linfield beat Ballymena 2-1 and mm-hmm. um, the game was at the, of course, the ground with the, fine, with the best name of any football ground in the world, um, Solitude, the home That's of right. Cliftonville. That's right. There was so much trouble there as well. There was crowd trouble there, wasn't it?
0: Well, to be honest, it's a part of my life, and it's a place at Northern Ireland that I, I very rarely get involved in because, quite honestly, when I took on the international job, the one thing that I said, I would talk to everybody about everything and anything, but I wouldn't do politics. Mm-hmm. I'd only do sport. And, and I found that something that I couldn't really understand uh, really solve the problem, and really, could I change it? I couldn't. But what I could do, I could certainly push sport forward and make sport the purpose of my life, and
1: hope that people would bounce off that, feed off that, and get something positive out of it. I mean, just to give people an example of how seriously these things were, as I say, there was crowd trouble on Cliftonville's ground involving Linfield supporters during the '70 World Cup, uh, Irish Cup final. Linfield didn't play on Cliftonville's ground for another 28 years after that. You won the title again in 1970-71, but this must have been, you were really flowering as a footballer then, Brian, because you're player of the year, you're footballer of the year. Were you aware that other teams across the the sea were starting to look at you?
0: Oh yeah, I I knew all along, and even in my younger years, I knew people were wanting me to go across and play in different parts of England and Scotland. But it was something that I never took on board purely because I knew that my father had made a a rule that I had to finish my qualifications, mm-hmm. get get my education sorted out. And then after that, I could play football, as he said. So really, I, when you, we speak about the troubles, I just look upon it as dark days. And when you get dark days, you sometimes try to put them to the back of your mind. And that's what I've tried to do. I just look at the very positives, all the positives that come out of Northern Ireland, the great people that are there. And I've been lucky in my life to go back to manage the national side and help the situation. Tell us how you signed Priesthood Town. Well, my manager at Linfield at that time was Billy Bingham, uh, who had great faith in me and, and believed that I could be you know, a, a player that he could depend on. And I was scoring goals on a regular basis for him at Linfield. So he just felt then that I could make the move across. And I'd played international football uh, and I knew it was time for me to make the move. And I'd actually discussed this with him. So he, he I think he was at a, a, a coaching conference with Bobby Robson and he had had different contact from different clubs. And the next thing he told me that Bobby Robson would like to sign me. So I was actually staying with some friends up in Chester during that period of time. And I got on the train, came down, uh, met Bobby Robson at Portman Road. And uh,
1: that's where it all started for me with uh, Ipswich Town. What kind of, I mean, we're used to hearing the image. He's gone to football legend now, Bobby Robson's time at Ipswich where they become a power, not just domestically, but in Europe. But what type of a club did you join in the early 70s? Well, we, we have discussed
0: this. Alan Hunter and I are good friends, and uh, we have discussed the, the situation, how um, Ipswich became the type of club that it was, because there was, it had a lot of supporters from different parts, especially from Europe, because it was so close to the uh, Harwich and Felixstowe. Um, but if they weren't your first club, there were many people's second
1: club. Because they had a history, sixty-one, sixty-two. They They'd won, won the title league. in sixty-two was a fairy tale. They beat absolutely. Spurs double team to absolutely. the title. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: absolutely. They, and and uh, they had people like Alf Ramsey. Uh, they had uh, many many quality people through the ta- through their years. But we always said there was a man called John Cobalt, who was the chairman of Ipswich Town Football From Club, the brewing dynasty, ah, and he was just a wonderful character. He he was magnificent for Bobby Robson. Uh, I think he let Bobby uh, develop and grow and manage. But he also, uh, you know, he was good to the players. He was great with visiting supporters. He was great with visiting directors. And
1: Ipswich Town was a, a nice place to be at that time. You played um, in the in opening season, 71-72. You, you, you know, you played um, plenty of games for Ipswich. But I think it really kicks off for you the following season, 72-73. And you believe this is where Bobby Robson's team really comes together. The opening day of the season, you go to Old Trafford. Well, we had...
0: I go back a little bit before yeah. that because we had a pre-season uh, where we had been to Europe. We had played uh, teams in England we would travel to play Millwall uh, and we weren't very good. We had sort of a draw here. We had lost a match there but we hadn't been very impressive at all. And uh, we, I couldn't say we were full of confidence but the first match was against the great Manchester United with uh, Dennis Law, Bobby Charlton, George Best at Old Trafford. Now, I know they give us a prayer they, with what was no chance that, that was going to happen, little Ipswich Town. But we went up there, and whatever happened, we played ever so well on the day. Maybe because Manchester United allowed us to play, we had some very good footballers on the side at that time. But we played unbelievably well. We won the game two-one. I, I got one. I think Trevor Weimark got the second one. Uh, and from there, we just went on. We just developed, and we were we became almost unbeatable. And the season got stronger and it just was telling me at that time confidence is so important because all of a sudden we had this great belief in ourselves
1: individually, uh, collectively as a team and all of a sudden Ipswich were a par. And you're right to say, it had a fantastic season, finished fourth and therefore qualified for the UEFA Cup and it's there that I as a young person start to see, oh my God, Ipswich town, something is happening at that football club because in the 73-74 UEFA Cup, which was then of course the UEFA Cup then... Was not the derided thing that Europa League is now. It was an incredibly important competition, and people took it very seriously. In the early rounds of the UEFA Cup, you beat. I'm mean, just looking at the names here: Real Madrid and Lazio. Well, they were fantastic matches for uh, for Ipswich Town as a team,
0: for the players, for the supporters, uh, for the town generally. And I, 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 as you know, live quite close to Ipswich and do some corporate work with them. And the older supporters love talking about that period of time, you know, because especially European nights they were really special and when we played Real Madrid it was just because Real Madrid were my team I remember watching them play Di Stefano, Puskas, Hinto I thought they were amazing so when we drew Real Madrid I thought it had won the the, the lottery so when we played them uh, they were an amazing side and we won the game 1-0 on the night the atmosphere was electric And uh, I think I'm giving the goal to Mick Mills. I think there was talk about it being a known goal, but I thought Mills, he got in there, he made it happen, he scored the goal, and we beat them 1-0. So we go across to play at the Barnaboo, which is amazing. Absolutely amazing. And they're still favourite. We're only 1-0 up. And we were, on the night, brilliant. The defensively solid played so well as a
1: unit, and they just couldn't break us down. And it was an amazing win over the two legs. I always thought Bobby Robson, everyone talked about the football he played. I always thought he was a terribly underrated defensive coach as well as a matter of interest. You've beaten Real Madrid, but because that's the opening round, because it's an open draw, unlike the seeded nonsense of today, in the next round you meet Lazio. You beat them 6-4 in aggregate, but that's not half the story. It was another nut house, wasn't it, the games against Lazio?
0: Well, again, it was an amazing night. The first leg was at Portman Road, and we were fantastic. We, you know, We mentioned briefly the Ipswich Town team at that stage because we were powerful. We had people like Trevor Weimark, David Johnson, Alan Hunter, Kevin Beatty, unbelievably good in the air. And and we were a strong team. We were physical. Uh, we were we had quick players. We were a good side. Lazio underestimated us. And on the night, we were just terrific. Trevor Weimark was out of this world. Put in a, a world class performance. I, I, I think he scored the four goals. And we just we, we the game was we over. Did, then. Yeah, yeah. It was over. You know, nobody realised that or thought that we'd even lose it after that four nil. So when we went across to play in Rome. Now, that was another experience. As we were getting off the plane, there's a, a group waiting for us as we come down the steps with the trophy. We didn't realise who they were. They wanted Mr. Weimark. They wanted to present to him. And it was, uh, I think, a supporters club or part of a unit from the Roma supporters uh, football club. <laughs> so the rivalry was amazing. The rivalry was amazing. We didn't realise what we were walking into. When we, we, you know, we prepared properly, uh, you speak about Bobby Robson, he had a great sidekick and Cyril Lee. They were a great partnership and uh, they worked and prepared us terrific. And we were ready to play, we were ready to go into the game. But it was mayhem. Absolute mayhem. As soon as the match started, they were punching, kicking. They were intimidating the referee. And you just felt, I want this game over quickly. So I, th- I can't remember how the scoreline went. Did they go 2-0 up? Yes, they did. And we needed one goal, we got a penalty kick. We got a penalty kick, and I've, I'm have i almost praying on the pitch because the away goals were double, of course. If we get this goal, they're not going to beat us. You know, we, we felt we could get through it. Well, Colin Viljohn came up, put the ball away, and poor old Trevor Wehrmark didn't realise, you know, was so uh, excited about the situation, jumped up and punched the air. And all of a sudden, these Lazio players are scissor-kicking, chasing him. <laughs> he ended up hiding behind the goalkeeper. But it was just one of those crazy nights in European football that you thought... I'm glad I took part in it, but I wouldn't want to do it again. And for the supporters, I was glad my wife didn't go to the game. There
1: was talk about her going because there was chaos in the stands as well. I mean, uh, the, the ultimate uh, sanctions were that da- poor David Johnson, your centre forward, ended up with a ripped scrotum from like a uh, foul in that game. <laughs> and uh, Lazio were banned from Europe for the following season, even despite being champions of Italy. Just uh, incredible. Uh, well, David, uh, Johnson, David Johnson was a
0: very strong player, a very committed player, a very physical player. And uh, w- there was one of the situations he just went into and you thought you know he's going to win it but the, the, the incident then was a foul but uh, he walked in afterwards John Owen t- t- a typical strong man from Liverpool he said he wasn't going to show anybody a scar so yeah, he good for the you. lucky for
1: you you beat Tw- uh, fc Twente in the uh, in the next round in the quarterfinal you met a locomotive Leipzig from East Germany the, the tie went to penalties ending one one on aggregate Brian. Ipswich lost the penalty shootout 4-3. You were photographed in the newspaper smoking a cigarette during No, the- no, no, I deny that. I deny <laughs> no, that. It go was on, my, then. It was my mate, Hunter, got me in trouble.
0: Uh, <laughs> go on, then. Because he was smoking at that stage. And uh, I think him and B- Kevin Beatty... In the shootout? Yeah, he, he stole a, a cigarette from, I think, a doctor or something like that. But uh, he was obviously nervous. He was coming up to have his penalty. And he said, hold that. Or he said, hold that for me. So I'm holding the cigarette for him. And, of course... I get photographed. Do you but smoke Brian? No, I'm very anti-smoking. That's, okay. that's one of the things. That's why they, they give me so much stick about this one photograph. And the poor doctor, Dr. Jackson, he was a nice, lovely man. And he passed away recently. And there was a photograph him on the pitch at that one incident. And of course, my, my photographs are with the doc, Hunter, and me standing with Hunter's cigarette. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt.
1: An amazing run in Europe. The following year, Ipswich almost won the title at 73-74. Um, finished third. and Someone has done the calculation for me. If we were playing under three points for a win, Jimmy Hill's great innovation recently left us, of course, yeah. Ipswich would have won the title. Yeah, we, we were a good side
0: at that stage. We, You know, uh, you spoke about Bobby Robson and, and I talk about Cyril Lee as well because they were a great team. And what they had brought through, there, there was a, a balance in the side Then and you had the experience of Mills, Hunter, Peter Morris, Colin Viljoen, But then there was the emergence of a lot of good young players. George Burley, Kevin Beatty, Clive Woods became, came on the scene. Mickey Lambert came on the scene. So there was a real balance about the squad. And we were lucky with injuries. I think you've got to be fortunate. At that period of time, we didn't seem to get too many injuries. The following year, when we got the Cup semi-finals and everything else, we picked up one or two injuries along the way. But
1: underestimated were people like Trevor Weimark. David Johnson as a, as a formidable too. Terrific. Brian, in total, you played under Bobby Robson for four and a half years at Ipswich Town. Um, So many players who came under under his spell talk about him with both humour and affection. What are your own recollections uh, of what people always describe now as a great man? Well, I I
0: had a a lot of time for Bobby Robson. He signed me, he sold me, so we hit the post on that one. But during that period of time, uh, I think I was a good player for him. And, And when I look back at that, Manchester United game in the '72 season. I think that was the start of the Bobby Robson era. That group of players started his managerial career off really because Vancouver he had done okay, Fulham he had done okay, but that that Ipswich team really took him on to bigger and better things. With three teams at Ipswich, Barcelona, England, and he was a he was a sensational
1: guy. And 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 the, I always tell people he was a nice man. People always say that, and of course, I've no reason to disbelieve it. But he's always presented these days as some kind of, uh, sort of, kindly old uncle coming around with a with a packet of sweets for you in, the, in 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 his pocket. He must have had another side to him to get the best out of some of the footballs he had there.
0: I think what he did, and he was very smart. He got good people about him. I mean, I speak about Cyril Lee during my time at Ipswich. Uh, after that, he, he he got a guy called Bobby Ferguson. You know, he got people around him who I think that he realised. And I went out, you know, I went to Portugal to see him. Uh I went to uh Barcelona to see him and i and I tried to feed off him and I think when with when he moved in those circles, what he did he learned the uh, European game he learned that basically we're, when we in england uh, we did everything we did the weights we did the nutrition we did the fitness we did this team selection he realized that there was you know teams within teams. And I think that's what, he, that's what helped him in his career. But basically, a genuine nice man. And uh, and, and he certainly helped me in my
1: career. Towards the end of your Ipswich career, you were involved in an FA Cup semi-final that remains to this day hugely controversial against West Ham. Then in 1977, an even more controversial FA Cup semi-final. Uh, Everton played Liverpool in an All-Mersey semi-final. The same referee, Clive Thomas. And you were on the thick end of two extraordinary lots of decisions. Talk to me first about 73-74.
0: Well, the Ipswich team were a very good side. Arguably we were the best team left in the competition. West Ham were our opponents on the day and uh, it just didn't work out for us in the first leg. It was a it was a closely fought game. It wasn't a classic, but it was a it was a tight game and it went to a replay. And I just felt at that, that time, we were slightly better than West Ham. We just needed to get in front. If we had a got in front, I think we'd have won the match. It was at
1: Stamford Bridge, the second game. The yeah. second
0: game was at Stamford Bridge, and we had lost one or two players. I think David Johnson was unfit, Alan Hunter was unfit, so there was one or two changes in the side. But we had played reasonably well, and I'd scored a goal, and everybody thought it was a goal. All the West Ham players thought it was a goal. The linesman kept his flag down. Kept his flag down. So everything appeared to be in place, and the referee came from a distance to give a decision I think he gave it for offside don't ask me why but that was really disappointing because I just felt at that time Ipswich were emerging as I say we had won Texaco Cup but we needed to win a league we needed to win a cup to really accelerate mm. the pro- the process and it was disallowed and we went on to
1: lose the game so it was a major decision you're right the, the problem with referees is that you know they get so much right and then you make a big decision like this one everyone I'm going to put this out on Twitter but literally dozens of Ipswich Town fans saying hang on it, it affects the players it affects the coach it affects the club's development doesn't it
0: well I, I agree with that I do think that there was a time and place where Ipswich needed to move on and that winning of a trophy getting to a final would have changed that it might have accelerated you know how good they became during the 70s and 80s but I think when you a referee I don't doubt their honesty I, I just feel that they've got a very tough job and I don't know Clive Thomas as such I've spoken to him but I don't really know the guy and he's been involved in one or two controversial decisions over over his period of time as a as a referee, and he was a very good referee. But I just feel that when you're making a decision uh, as big as that, you've got to be a hundred percent sure.
1: And if you're standing in a position where you can't make that decision, then I think you must let it go. Well, let, let's let's uh, let's move forward then, um, two or three years to a semi-final um, when you've moved to Everton. We'll talk about that a little later against Liverpool. Again, another incredibly close game, a brilliant game, as I recall. Um, And the same referee is somehow involved. What do you remember of that game? Well, I have long
0: memories of that. And and to be honest with you, I look back on the game. It was a fantastic game because that was a magnificent Liverpool side. And they were arguably the best team in the country and better than Everton uh, from a league perspective. But we were a very good cup side. And on the day, Liverpool were favourites,
1: but we were... Terrific. We played really, really well. The team performed. It was a but it was a classic semi final. You were one nil down, came back. You were two yeah. one down, came back. It's two two, the last minute of the game, and Clive does what he does. Um, you didn't handle the ball, did you by any chance?
0: No, to be honest with you, this was a problem. That, uh, I mean, I look around. As soon as that happened, I looked ac- across the linesman because you're obviously you unaware it's happened so fast. Uh, Ronnie Goodless was involved. Uh, Duncan McKenzie was involved. I, I couldn't get my head to it. I couldn't get my foot to it. And I just turned it came off my hip bone and went flat into the bottom corner. And all the players, Liverpool players around me, Clements, Joey Jones, they, they all knew it was a goal. Everybody knew it was a goal. And uh, I mean we celebrated we were ready to go and then all of a sudden there was indecision and the referee came and he pointed to the spot and I said to him at the time I said what is the problem and and I think I, I'm trying to rem- I think he said to me it was an infringement which is a very smart answer because basically it covers Goes everything yeah. but it, it as I always said it, it tells you a lot and doesn't tell you anything and and I just feel on that occasion uh, Clive felt and, and I'd love to know what his thinking was he felt that the only way that I could get that in was in with my arm or hand or whatever. I know 100% that that didn't take place and I've never heard an explanation and it was sad because as we spoke about Ipswich a few moments ago uh, where they were at that time it was exactly the same with Everton they were a, an emerging side that had done very well in the League Cup that year we got the League Cup final we'd done okay in the league uh, there was one or two players coming through and they just needed that maybe final I think it was against Manchester United where they could have went on possibly won the game and Everton Uh, as a club might have accelerated again they come in for great times after that but it might just brought forward one or two years so I was was sadly disappointed and look back in reflection uh, two FA Cup semi-finals I played in one League Cup final but I never played in an FA Cup final
1: and in, in both cases, you could argue, you were robbed of that opportunity by the, by the referee. I think so. I, yeah. I, I think when I look well, you're back... you're a very reasonable man. I know people less reasonable than you who wouldn't even say uh, possibly. They would say that you were robbed. Well, uh, to be honest with you, I, I look back and my son sometimes...
0: I have no bitterness at all. I mean, it, it, it takes place during the, the course. And my son tells me on a regular basis, how lucky I've been. And I think he's been right. He tells me, you know, look at the places you've played, the people you've worked with, the people you've, you know, played against. So I have been lucky in my career. That is something that I look back on and think it might have been. But uh, I think he was right in this occasion. Move on.
1: We did skip um, the fact you'd left it to join Everton in November of 75. And you did mention there that you did, uh, during your time at Everton, uh, firstly under Billy Bingham um, and then Gordon Lee, um, you'd actually reach a cup final, the League Cup final of 1976 yeah. 77. Unfortunately, there, uh, another titanic straw. That go to three games. Three games. And Chris Nickel, my good friend Chris Nickel, who played with me in the, the Northern Ireland
0: side, the third match was at Old Trafford, would you believe? I think the second, first one was Wembley, of course. I think mm-hmm. the second one was at Hillsborough. The third one was at Old Trafford. And Chris Nickel hit a screamer with his left foot from about 40 yards. And I was very close to him, trying to close him down. And it went like a rocket. And, of course, we we smiled about it afterwards. He's never hit one since, uh, never hit one. It was like a, a one of his golf shots. It was terrific, and we never won the game. But uh, it was a memorable trip, and uh, the club enjoyed it. The players enjoyed it, and
1: uh, it was another move forward for Everton Football Club. What else do you remember about your time at Everton? I
0: just loved the club. Uh, they were a big club. I, I, I must say, as a young person, I, I supported Spurs. I was a Danny Blansford, Jimmy Greaves fan. But I knew about Everton. They had a lot of Irish players. But when you went to play at Everton, they're a special club. They remain very much part of my uh, DNA. I love going back to Goodison Park. I I love speaking with the chairman. He's a terrific guy, Bill uh, Kenwright. And and to be honest the club is just special.
1: They're a wonderful club. And in this section, I'd like to talk more about your career playing for your country uh, most no, notably I guess in the early 70s when you were playing with some uh, some very very good players but also you had to play all your home matches in England tell us about that Yes it was a difficult
0: time for Northern Ireland uh, politically and every other way and of course the Northern Ireland side were asked to play matches in different parts of the UK I think we played at Hull we played at Coventry we played at uh, Goodison Park it was very difficult and when you look back at that time we had a, an abundance of super players you look at the great Arguably the best goalkeeper in the world, Pat Jennings. The great George Best, arguably the best player in the world. Uh, you you had people like Alan Hunter, Lame O'Kane, uh, Sammy Nelson, Pat Rice. You know, you can go on forever, Derek Dugan, and they were a formidable outfit. But playing away from home did create a problem for us, and, and it certainly didn't make it easy to qualify for did the competitions.
1: Play, did you play? I think you played all over the, the sort of country. Where did you remember playing? Goodison? We played Goodison, we played
0: at Hull, we played at Coventry. Something tells me we might have played a game in London. Uh, We were travellers and it was difficult. And it was hard for the supporters as well. But it did allow us to come back to Northern Ireland and play one game.
1: Well, uh, we'll come on to um, some of your earlier international... But you did eventually, I think, uh, I got this right, between October of 71, um, when they played against the Soviet Union, and March of 75, there was no games in Belfast. And that game in 75 was a game a homecoming game if you like against a really really brilliant Yugoslavian team. Well, Yugoslavia produced players and
0: I was always surprised that they could never win the World Cup because technically gifted, you know, a formidable side, but it was only in later years when we realized there was some differences in the country that that didn't happen. But when Yugoslavia came to play, it was such an emotional day at Windsor Park. It really was. It was it was a homecoming and we played unbelievably well. Uh, the crowd were fantastic, and we won the game one 0 And I was fortunate enough to score uh,
1: the goal that won the game, well so done. it was a special moment for me. And, and as I say, an emotionally charged day. At the very start of the programme, we heard um, uh, the the commentary on the goal uh, that was never that was not given. It's I must I think it must be the most famous not given goal in English football history, where George Best flicks the ball <laughs> out of the air when, uh, when uh, Gordon Banks is yeah. about to uh, to take, kick it out of his hand. Uh, you were on the pitch there. What do you remember about that?
0: I do remember it. And it was only someone like George who could do that. Gordon Banks, a, a phenomenal, phenomenal keeper. And arguably the best goalkeeper of his time. But I just felt that um, on that occasion, what he had done, he had thrown the ball into the air. And I felt in regulation time, it was free. George came in, nicked it away from him, put it the ball in the back of the net. And uh, that would have put us 1-0 up. I think we might have won the game. And as it happened... Uh, I think it was Colin Bale maybe scored the, the
1: goal that beat us in that day but it was arguably offside so it was there was a lot of controversy in that game well you had to have the brains didn't you you had to have the brains to, to think about doing it. then you had to have the, the athleticism to do what George did and then the skill to do it talk to me about George um I had Mike Summerby on the show a few weeks ago who, of course, was a very close personal friend of George. I don't know how close you got to him. But what was it like playing with him, first of all?
0: Well, uh, for me, he was exceptional. I mean, I'm very biased because he's from Belfast and he, he, he really carried the flag for a long time. And I just thought he had every part of the game that uh, anybody could have. He was great control. He had a left foot, he had a right foot. He was very athletic. He was strong in the air. He was strong in the tackle. And he was a great lad. And I think he enjoyed coming with Northern Ireland. I, I, I especially think he enjoyed coming home. And he, he was playing with players who he had known for a long, long time, came through the, the junior sides with them. But I just found him, when I look back on, on his life, I think the saddest thing for me was that he didn't play it long enough because I just feel he had such so many skills, so many things that he could give the young people. And he's
1: a sad loss, but a great lad. Uh, and you, know, you give the impression, Brian, of being a model professional, um, you're very sensible and clear-headed about things. Um, and were you aware, that even as a youngster, that George was a very different kind of person, that he was living his life to the absolute full, even outside the game? Well,
0: I, I looked upon George as, as a superstar. I mean, even we did. But Did you hear him worship him, even as a well, contemporary? We well, I just recognised the talent. He was such a talented boy. And I remember playing in junior football in different matches against him when he was coming through the Craigie ranks. And, and he was just something very special. And there's no doubt about it. He blossomed in Manchester, and he was just right for that. Uh, arena because they play wonderful football free flow they love people with genius and he was a genius and I was just privileged to play with and play against him, he was
1: a fantastic player Let me ask you an impossible question but let us let us um uh, try and answer it as freely as we can Imagine George today where you can't kick him and the pitches are perfect. What kind of player do you think he would have been today? Well, I just talk about the
0: situation today, and a lot of people ask me, you know, you know, do you regret not playing in this time and all the rest of it? And I think yes. The the part that we miss a little bit, of course, would be the money. That sure. would that would be very helpful.
1: But I look at the. Can the, you imagine if George had all that money as well? Oh my goodness, <laughs> it'd be scary. But the thing
0: is that I just look at the plain surface, and I look back at our time when at the start of the season it was green grass and like a you know a, you know like a billiard table. We were able to play. Uh, later on, it was very heavy, very muddy, very wet, and then towards the end of the season it became very bumpy and dry. And George mastered every one of those conditions. And if I look at the pitches today, and we look at the great Arsenal pitch in the Portman Road, and every stadium you see now, they're right, just right down to the conference. They are fantastic. Well, he would have been an absolute genius. And I'm not sure if you give him the ball, you'd ever get it back, because I think he had just that much talent, that much skills, so, that much, so much ability that he had been... Well, I think he'd been better
1: than Messi. Wow. Um, in 1973, you played an unofficial... Uh, uh, very I mean, Obviously, there was a great deal of trouble. Uh, not, that's not the right word. Controversy, the North and the, uh, the Republic. They didn't play each other very often um, and all the rest of it. But you played in a game, it's officially Shamrock Rovers um, against Brazil in 1973. But somebody had the bright idea of bringing together all the best players from the island. It was a combined Republic of Ireland... And uh, it was it was all Ireland against Brazil. Well, it was an all Ireland side. That's the way we were told about it, and it was something that I
0: felt was very special. Yeah. Uh, because I obviously was aware of the situation back home. Uh, I had family and friends back there, uh, and I knew how difficult it was for for everybody. I was I was looking upon this as a, as a special match. It was it was for charity, UNICEF, and for Irish Cancer. So it was played a good cause. But when I looked at the
1: opportunity to play against the great Brazil side, Revelino, Jarzinho, uh, Valdemiro, Piazza, Jose Maria—they were all in that team. Well, yeah, they were amazing. They were, they
0: were fantastic. But what took place that day was again—I I look upon the Yugoslavia game as something very special and emotional. This one was equally emotional. It was an unbelievable atmosphere. The place was packed. It was a beautiful day. And when you look at the players who played in that team, you know Brady and. Uh, Giles and O'Neill and Hunter and you know you can go on. Pat Jennings, were, obviously. Yeah, Pat Pat was of course the representative and 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 quite honestly it was a it was an amazing day an amazing. We lost four three and I was lucky enough to get Revelino's shirt. Do you still have the shirt? I do. I yeah. do. It was a fantastic moment for me and I was a huge fan of Revelino. He's a terrific uh, player.
1: What are the other highlights of your international career, Brian, that you can remember?
0: I just loved playing for Northern Ireland. It was something very special and I always remember as a little boy coming home on the bus and sitting with a lad who was arguably the best player in our school and we talked about what we were going to do and we were the little dreamers and I always said that I wanted to play professional football. Uh, I wanted to play International football. I wanted to represent my country, and he said, "You know, he was just happy enough to play junior football and enjoy his football." And I found that strange because he had such a talent. But I just knew I wanted to be the best that I could be, and being the best that you could be was to play international football. I was allowed to do that and to play with and against some of uh, some terrific players. And I still think to this day that at that time, unfortunately, because we played away, we probably would have maybe made more tournaments, final tournaments, because we had people like Pat. George Terry Neal Alan
1: Hunter Martin O'Neill there was a Rice, th- Nelson yeah, yeah terrific terrific squad of players you finished playing up with 50 caps um, your final cap was in the summer of 1980 against Australia which means you missed the boat to uh, to Spain in 82 um, I don't know if you had any chance to carry on playing but do you regret not getting to play in that World Cup in 82
0: well, I, I was at the end of my career at that stage. I I, I went along with the the international side that won the, the, the British Championship. And I think he had added, Billy Bingham had added me to the squad because it was such a, a long tour and I was such an... This exper- is Australia. Yeah, yeah, and I was such an experienced player. We played in Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide and Perth. And I think he just wanted that support for the younger players. But it was the end of my time. And I just look back from 68 to 80, I had a fantastic time. was very lucky. Uh, and I think from '82 to '86 was one were the wonder years for Northern Ireland. And at that time, as I say, the the players in the team were good. But when you look at the players that were coming through, uh, we had Sammy McElroy, David McCreary, Jimmy Nicholl, Martin O'Neill, and of course my great friend Jerry Jerry Armstrong.
1: Ryan, Let's uh, we talked about your time with Northern Ireland. Let's return to your club uh, career now. After leaving Everton, you were playing at Millwall at a, a time when football violence was uh, huge in this country I mean I thought it nearly destroyed the game by the mid-80s i got to be honest um, but it particularly attached to this club for whatever historical reasons and there was a documentary made of at the time when you were playing there at Millwall which seemed to, to uh, heighten all of that and you played in an FA Cup quarter-final um, for Millwall against uh, your old club Ipswich um, which ended up with the players uh, virtually having to well they did leave the pitch for their own uh, safety reasons but um, do you think Can you talk to us about Millwall and, and, and the way the crowd violence affected the club or oh, playing in England in the 70s and 80s when this was going on? Well, I think I can speak on about Millwall for
0: sure because when I went to the club, uh, Gordon Jago was a manager and uh, a man called Burnage was a chairman and he worked in London. So I never actually uh, got to see Coldwell Lane or where they were going to train. And I had been very lucky to have played at Ipswich where we changed in the dressing room and our pitch was right, the training pitch was right behind the, the stadium. And, of course, uh, Belfield Everton's training ground was amazing. Yeah. So when I came down to London, I, I thought it would be interesting to, you know, the progress and the coaching and maybe uh, the captaincy role, responsibility. And living in London was, was an attraction. But when I came down, I, I didn't see any part of it. And it was only then that I found out that there was this... Uh, about Millwall, that they were, there was a little bit of violence went around the ground. I can only speak about the people that I met. Mm-hmm. The football club, as it was, they were wonderful people. I enjoyed them. the The tea lady, the cleaning lady, the the ground staff, uh, the people who worked at the club, and I just they were the people that I met. The supporters I met were all very responsible, respectable, and I've you know I still speak to them now when I go to the ground. But when I played in that game. Uh, against Ipswich there had been two or three games before that we had played Spurs home and away and we played West Ham home and away and there was an awful lot of negativity around it which I didn't like which I didn't like and then when we played Ipswich at home and Ipswich were special to me which were a, a, a super side at that. I think they went on to win the cup that year. But at the same time... They also had a temerity to win by six goals They at, did. At the Den. Oh, no, they, they absolutely tore us apart. They were a super side and won the game deservedly. But it was what went on around the ground which disappointed me. And it was one of the things that I had to think long and hard about afterwards because I didn't want to be playing football with that hanging over me. But I try the best I can to pick out all the positives... And I have so many positives having spent time at Millwall with some super people. Theo Foley is one of my best friends. And and it was through Millwall that I met Theo Foley. So there was a lot of good things come out of Millwall. I would only want the best for them. And I would only hope that uh, in years to come they get this uh, stigma attached to them, you know, taken away because they are a nice club uh, in a busy working area of London and they can be a good side. You played for a variety of clubs, Swindon. I was smart enough to know that I couldn't keep playing, just solely depending on the playing end of it. I knew I wanted to go into coaching. I I knew I wanted to go into management. So when I went to Millwall, Gordon Jago asked me to go down uh, to work with a, a great friend of mine, Theo Foley. And I was sort of made captain of the side and I enjoyed that responsibility, that role. I work with some of the younger players, but it was my
1: introduction to working and coaching and trying to develop other people. When we spoke earlier in the programme, you said you always had a vision in your mind about wanting to be a player. Did you you always have a vision about coaching and managing, which we're going to talk about a lot in the second half of the programme?
0: I think that was maybe a problem. I I just knew that that I couldn't play forever, and I was always looking to see what the next stage was being. Maybe I didn't enjoy as much as I should have done. the. ...the playing part... ...but I was looking too, too quickly ahead... ...but I always did the coaching badges... ...and I had my qualifications from the FA... ...and Millwall as I say started it off... ...then I was given the opportunity to go to Swindon... ...as player coach... ...which was an interesting stage for me... ...I liked Swindon... ...I'd never lived in that part of the world... ...and and they were a nice club at that time... ...they, they, they, uh, they produced some very good young players... ...had a run in the League Cup... ...and did very well in the league... ...and then once I left there... Tranmere Rovers were looking for a manager... And having spent some of my time on Merseyside, uh, I went as player manager of Tranmere Rovers, and that was an exciting spell for me, something very new. And when I look back then, the people I met during that period of time, uh, Bill Shankley phoned me up and said, Could I come in and see you? And I thought, My goodness, fantastic. Bill Shankley walks in and sits down, and well, I, did, I didn't talk at all. I no. listened for two hours. I met the great Bob Paisley, and uh, Joe Mercer lived not far from me. I, I took Joe to different dinners. So I was lucky enough to, to meet some unbelievable characters during that period of time. And, and I developed a very good Tranmere Riverside. A lot of young lads from Merseyside and Manchester and around that area. Very hungry. Great attitude. And, and we had a really good time for nearly five years there. And uh, and I was very pleased with the work that I did.
1: Was that was that during that strange period where Tranmere used to play on Friday night?
0: Always played on the Friday night. There to was avoid
1: a, the big games on Merseyside? I
0: think that was the idea. Bill Bothell was the, the chairman then, and Bill was a, a leading light with the BBC. And, of course, he, he worked on Saturday. And, you know, whether that had an influence or not, I couldn't tell you. But they always had Friday night football at, at Tranmere Rovers. And I used to watch it when I was at Everton. I used to go across and see the games. But... Uh, I just enjoyed the area. I enjoyed the club. I enjoyed some of the players. I had some terrific players. Derek Mountfield went on to bigger and better things. John Kelly did uh, good things. You know, there was a lot of players developed there and went on and and really progressed in their career. Uh, Financially, it was very difficult.
1: Always has been a tricky club, hasn't it? Very difficult.
0: But uh, I had a great German. I uh, had a a guy called Harold Thomas who was simply special. I learned a lot from him. And then eventually they were brought over by an American uh, group and uh, that wasn't going to work. They they wanted more than I was prepared to give. They wanted to have an involvement in team selection and bringing in players in. Maybe they were ahead of their time. I don't Absolutely. know.
1: Absolutely. What I was going to say, American owners asking to pick the team is now all the rage, isn't it? Well, but, uh,
0: well, to be honest with you, maybe they were ahead of their time. It was obviously what they felt. They were banning the company and they wanted to do that or they wanted to have a heavy, heavy influence on it. And uh, I was old school, uh, having come through, you know, Ipswich and Everton and Swindon and Millwall. So I wanted to have an input on who was coming to the club. I wanted to pick the team for sure. And uh, it wasn't going to work. And I'd done reasonably well. I'd sort of taken uh, Tranmere from bottom to uh, respectability, kept the club alive by, you know, some very good players. Uh, uh, Colin Clark went on and John Kelly was sold as a Derek Mountfield to keep the club alive. And I was uh, very quickly offered uh, a job at Wigan. And uh, that was a great time for me as well. Very good young players. Uh, all went on to bigger and better things. Aspinall, Newell, Kelly, uh, Langley, uh, David Lowe, Walsh. Steve Walsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had some great old professionals. Uh, Colin Methvin, Alex Cribbley, John Butler. They were really, really good Stock Graham Barrow, who stayed in the game. And uh, we had a fun, you know, a fun time, but also a very...
1: Productive time. Well, I can say, because um, it's all, all very well managing these teams, but you, you need to, to win something just for your own heart and soul. And you uh, it was at Wigan that you won the, the old Football League trophy.
0: We did, and we missed promotion by a point. Uh, we were arguably the best team in the league that year. There was Derby were formidable, and Plymouth at that stage were a big supported club. And we were like the, the, the poor ones behind them all. But we had the best team we had the best team and unfortunately we missed it out on playoff or not playoff by one point and i was disappointed for the players disappointed for the club but of course they went on to bigger and better things and once i had done my time with them
1: i was offered another job so after winning that football uh, league trophy um the club does very well wigan in the league finishing fourth in 85 86 just missing out on promotion by a point point. Um and I guess that's when you came to the attention of uh, even bigger clubs with all due respect those days to Wigan Athletic but of course Leicester are a all powerful club now and you became manager of Leicester City Yeah I've been very lucky to
0: have worked at some special clubs and uh Leicester Norwich Ipswich I almost put in a similar type of you know family clubs good support nice ground and I was very lucky to meet a guy called Gordon Millen Uh, who was just one of the nicest men you could meet in the game and a very knowledgeable man and if I made any mistakes at all when I went to uh, Leicester Gordon was in the throes of maybe becoming general manager or doing something different with his life and I should have worked harder to persuade him to stay because he was very knowledgeable and a nice man I got on with him unbelievably well And uh, really what I did when I left, when I worked at Leicester, uh, when I look at the depth of squads, I mean, management team that uh, premier clubs have now, uh, there was a, a youth coach, a physiotherapist and myself. That was the three who really worked at Leicester City Football Club. And that was in the old first division, the premiership. So I had some very good players. I changed the team around a little bit. I was short in one or two positions, but I had some terrific players. Gary McAllister, Alan Smith... Uh, You know, it was a good unity in Wilson. And uh, at one stage we played QPR in London. We actually won 1-0. I think Alan Smith scored the goal. I mean, I think we went to sixth in the league. But it was hard because there was just simply no money. And uh, I ended up selling Alan to uh, Arsenal uh, and brought him back on loan. And he was such a special player. There's not many people could do that in those days. But he was just uh, simply a nice
1: man. You took the words right out of my mouth. He's done this program. Just an incredibly nice man. No,
0: he's a a lovely man, but a fantastic professional and a very good player. And he was really terrific for me during that period of time when it was so difficult for me. And, uh, of course, Gary McAllister, I moved about a little bit. and, and, And I actually played with a sweeper, which I don't normally do. Uh, I just didn't have any wide players and it really needed some money to strengthen the side to change it and the club didn't have it at that stage and it was difficult for them and difficult for me and although I enjoyed my time at Leicester I was disappointed
1: that we didn't do better but that was part of the the growing up for Um, me. I mean yeah they they got relegated and uh, the following December after that uh, you left. Can I ask you a personal question? Did you leave or, because um, nowadays managers never leave the job. They, have mm. to, they they literally have to be dynamited out of their seats and I presume there's financial reasons for that. Did you leave or did they sack you?
0: Well, it's, it's always a come together of people, isn't it? I knew we weren't doing very well. I wasn't unbelievably happy doing what I was doing. There was no money to, su- to support the team. The crowd were becoming a little bit restless and I just think that they felt and I felt at the same time, you know, there was a I got a call from the chairman. who was a nice man. Called me into the office on the Thursday, and and once I got the call, I knew that there was going to be a change. And we sat down. It was very responsible. We 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 you know we we talked it out, and we wished each other the very best. So I was not happy to leave, but I I knew it was
1: the best and and the best interest for Leicester and for me. Brian, you had the uh, the honour of playing for your country fifty times, and I know how much that meant to you. And in nineteen ninety four and I'm guessing it meant just as much to you, you became manager of the country as well. Well, it, it did, and it was very
0: special for me and uh, for the, for my family as well because uh, when you play, it's special. When you, you're captain of the country, it's also very special. And then when you manage, there hasn't been too many managers. And uh, I was fortunate that I was given every one of those roles to, to, to take part in. Becoming manager was very difficult purely because you know, I was following the footsteps of uh, the great Billy Bingham, mm-hmm. who had done a, a fantastic job for Northern Ireland, developed players, taking them to two World Cups, eighty-two, eighty-six, 86, and just simply done a great job. The the the, the group were in, in a period of change, and uh, the FA, whether right, wrong, or indifferent, had decided Billy Bingham had done his time, and they were looking for something fresh, and they picked me. But what I did, I, I enjoyed working with the group, and one of the the best decisions I made was to to invite Jerry Armstrong along as my assistant. And Jerry and I were friendly, uh, big friends, of course, but became really, really big friends and one of the most loyal,
1: most honest, decent men you could work with. And uh, having um, worked with him many times, but also having done this show with him, um, a person, that if you were looking for, for a bouncer, would also make a very good bouncer. I think Jerry had so many qualities. He was a very
0: <laughs> smart man. He's a very strong man, and just a real good friend. And and his loyalty is something that you know I treasured. He was
1: terrific. I mean, I guess the the group of players you had included uh, people like Steve Lomas and Jim McIlton, Keith Gillespie, Jerry Taggart, um, uh, Michael O'Neill, um, and you 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 were set up uh, to try and qualify for the ch- European Championships in 1996. Um, in a group with Liechtenstein, Portugal, Austria, the Republic of Ireland and Latvia. Very, very close to qualifying, Brian. Well, we did very well. I mean, our problem was
0: that we, and it's something that I feel that I was did reasonably well, that I organised them very well. You know, they, they had a role, they had a responsibility. and We were very, very hard to beat. And they were all good guys. They worked very hard. And there was that certain amount of class about the squad. And you got a lot of goals from uh, one Ian Dowie. Ian I did very well. Uh, what I admired about Ian was he, he had limitations like the rest of his. But what he did, he, all his abilities, he got the maximum out of it. And uh, at that time, Keith Gillespie and Michael Hughes were playing quite well. And obviously Michael on the left, Keith on the right. And they were happy enough to put in good crosses for him. And we had a, a, a certain amount of quality in the squad, but it was a tough group. And uh, as I say, we
1: we almost got there, we we got the same points, but we just lost in a head-to-head with the Republic of Ireland. It's so painful though, uh, Brian, because um, people always talk about Northern Ireland being a fortress at home, you know, you have to go to Windsor Park and it'll be windy and rainy, but in this qualification you didn't lose a single game away from home and still somehow managed not to, to qualify. Yeah, it was a difficult
0: group and I remember speaking with Bobby Robson about Portugal because he had obviously spent time down there and I was trying to... Feed off him to see how he could help me and ask him about Figo and you know Rui Costa and all the players and he just kept saying they're fantastic players Brian they're fantastic players and I thought this is going to be a difficult game and they were the the standout side the Republic of Ireland were a very strong side with Roy Keane and company and it was always going to be tough for us to get even the second spot but what I do think we did very well was we stayed in there we showed great spirit we were so difficult to beat and we we got important results and uh, the result in Austria was terrific, a great performance and of course I felt because we lost badly against the Republic of Ireland in Belfast where we lost 4-0 and we didn't play that well but Republic of Ireland were a better side that's
1: the result of course because it went to head to head that's, that's right. the result that actually um, put you out of the tournament Th- but you be- you did much better in Dublin well no well, I was pleased with
0: Dublin because that was the next match which is always sometimes very difficult if you've lost heavily and then the next match is the same team and you're going to play them in their their home ground it was always going to be a, a big ask but the team played really really well and we deserved the 1-1 draw Jack Charlton who I became quite friendly with a, a really good guy I don't think he was that happy with me but at the end of the day he was quite pleased because we played Austria in the last game a uh, remarkable match 8
1: goal thriller but you, you were slightly more greedy with the goals 5-3 we played and we played
0: ever so well on a very wet windy uh, Belfast night at Windsor Park and it was a terrific game and because of what we did with Austria it meant then that uh, the Republic of Ireland uh, were through to the the playoff stages which was a tough ask
1: they played I think it was Holland in the playoff I mean um, we 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 don't want to be disrespectful either to Northern Ireland's FA or the those of the Ukraine or Albania or any of these countries. But you were telling me uh, a little off air that uh, it's not like these days where people just pitch up in uh, gold plated aeroplanes to do the scouting and things. It was much more. Um, how can I put it? Uh, off-your-own-back kind of thing. Basic. Well, Basic is a good word, yeah. Well,
0: no, to be honest with you, the, the, the FA tried to support us as best they could and it was never really easy. They weren't a very rich association. And uh, I wanted to see one or two of the teams playing and uh, I phoned Jerry up once and I'd got a couple of... Tickets for matches one in Albania, one in Ukraine to see Germany. Play. I bet
1: you didn't choose the Albanian one. Well, I said
0: to Jerry, "Jerry, we've got two trips. I said you're going to Albania and I'm going <laughs> to Ukraine. So he wasn't best pleased with me, but he's a he's a good lad. And I just said to him, be careful,' because without being disrespectful, no. you know, you, you you know the eating habits and all the rest of it, and uh, they have limitations. And I said, Jerry, just be careful." Uh, where you eat and what you do stay in the hotel and look after yourself and well, he was being Jerry being Jerry fantastic he he made friends with the taxi driver and uh, the taxi driver and him were exchanging stories about the both uh, young children and and eventually the taxi driver took him to a cafe and Jerry ate some food which possibly wasn't what it should have been oh didn't agree with Jerry yeah well I think he lost about three or four stone I felt so bad But uh, my experience wasn't that much better either because, I mean, I went to Ukraine and uh, I was walking through the offices in Belfast when the phone went and it was a
1: Ukraine FA and they said that all the hotel rooms had been taken up. Because you were going to watch the game between Ukraine and Germany and the Germans had taken all the hotel rooms. They had taken all
0: all the rooms. So uh, they they said, uh, you know, they were going to put me up in the private residence or whatever. And I'm thinking, when we were there, I hadn't seen that kind of facility. No. So anyway, I said, "Yeah, I need to see the match," so that was right. fine. So when I got picked up, two very decent men. One spoke a little bit of English. The other one didn't speak any English at all, and uh, they took me to this place, which was okay. And uh, I knew I was going to see the game. And then I was flying out with the Germans uh, the, the following next morning, the yeah. following morning, I think seven o'clock. But it was, it was, I was uncomfortable. Uh, the only part of the trip I really enjoyed was the match, and I ended up, you know, sitting down reading a book until about two or three in the morning. And the guy, I said, look, let's go to the hotel, to the German hotel, so I don't miss the, pl- the flight. So the, the pair of us had an experience which uh, we
1: still talk and smile about. <laughs> and not quite, perhaps, the international jet setting that the fans might think as involved with being a manager. Um, the next campaign uh, for you as manager was the 98 World Cup qualifications. Ukraine, Armenia, Germany, um, Portugal. Uh, again, a very, very tough group and a... You know, it, it's, it it has proved just so hard for Northern Ireland, following that golden age in the early '80s, to qualify. Well, I think so. I, it
0: was tough when you looked at it. Portugal and Germany, we knew were going to be tough games. But Ukraine were developing then. Uh, uh, that was when I saw Shevchenko and, and Rebrov play. You know, and and I came back and I spoke to people like David Plate, and I said I saw arguably the closest I'd seen the Alan Shearer uh, and Shevchenko. You know, the same kind of shape. He was strong in the air. Very good on the ground. But uh, I just felt that we might just get second place if we really pushed our luck. But it it wasn't to be. Portugal were just too strong, although we did get a result against them. Uh, We actually got a result against Germany in Nuremberg. We drew 1-1. And that was on the back of... Let's give
1: Jerry Taggart due credit there for his goal. Yeah, Jerry
0: Jerry did well. And we we got the equalizer in Nuremberg. So we started off the campaign well. uh, But it just petered out. And we just didn't have the depth of squad and the quality of player just to see us
1: through. Which takes us to the end of your time with Northern Ireland, Brian. Um, And I guess looking at that penultimate result of the group uh, where you lost on a neutral ground, oddly enough, in Zurich to Albania, people were saying that may be the reason why your contract wasn't renewed or you were sacked however you'd like to put it. What are your own recollections of... Uh, and I know you, you hate to dwell on the negative I've learned that about you already what are your recollections about ending your time at Northern Ireland
0: well I, I just loved the job I loved the role and to be honest with you it was one of those where I felt that in my own way that I'd done as much as I possibly could I'd followed on from Danny Blanchflower who was terrific Billy Bingham uh, you know people who had really left them work in Irish football and Danny had decided that he wanted to take all the Northern Ireland team around the province so that we could meet the people I did exactly the same thing I, I took the international team to train in different areas of Northern Ireland and when when it happened I was sad to leave the job but I just felt that I had done a reasonably good job, hadn't taken us over the line which was sad because the game away, uh, the neutral ground, we played okay, It was uh, there was no spectators, there was no atmosphere. Uh, I think Stephen Lomas hit the post in the early stages of the game. The the ball had went in. We'd have won the match. As it was, we we conceded the bad goal. We lost the game 1-0. And after then, I knew the right was on the wall. We finished off in Portugal uh, where seriously we played as well as we had played. We were super. We lost 1-0, but the the football was terrific. We passed the ball well. And I just thought, well, I'm leaving behind a good group of players uh, with a semblance of shape about them and potential. And that was something that I look back on and and I'm pleased with. You're not bitter about the way it ended. No, I I never get bitter. I just think it's part and parcel. It was it was something that happened. Uh, I had been allowed to live the dream. i had been allowed to play, coach, and manage. Uh, and in a in a roundabout way, I couldn't have asked for much more. Uh, maybe more success, but at least after that, you know, we've we've uh, we've done reasonably well. Michael Neal is doing fantastic now. I'm so pleased about that. Uh, the crowd have really come back to where they should be. They're a fantastic crowd once again where the numbers had dwindled after we had played away from home a little bit. You know, so it, 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 from for me, Northern Ireland's special. And I'm just so pleased that I was uh, allowed to play a part in
1: their football history you somehow popped up again as manager of Norwich City I only say that not because you're not a talented coach and manager but uh, but, uh, the Ipswich Norwich thing how in the hell did you end up as manager of Norwich well I I was a bit surprised to be honest with you but I met the lovely Delia Smith and her husband Michael
0: Wynne-Jones and uh, I'd done a reasonably good job with Northern Ireland and had carried the the credits with me I'd Done, then went to Ipswich Town where I think I'd done a very good job and we, we almost made the playoffs coming from fourth bottom into the playoffs
1: this is when you were uh, assistant to George Burley yeah. assistant
0: to George Burley and basically I I hadn't been given any indication that I was going to be asked to stay on I had no contract as such uh, George is a good friend I wanted to help him and uh, of course Ipswich was close to me so the, the story went on then. I'd done reasonably well, and next thing, one or two people were asking me, Would I be available next year? Would I be prepared to work? And I was looking for work. Sure. And I got a, a nice call from, uh, from Michael Wynn Jones, and they asked me to come along and speak with them. And I, I did that, and then they, they said to me, You know, on the back of what we've said, would like to offer you, you know, we'd like you to work with us. And I'm assuming it's going to be his manager. And they said, we don't want you to be the manager, we want you to be something else, we just want you to be part of the team. And I said, well, you know, what would you want me to be? And it ended up something like technical assistant or technical director, or, uh, uh, anyway the term didn't sure. matter, but it wasn't manager. But I was going to be working with the first team, the reserves, and also working at to develop the academy, so it was something that I was you know really bought into it. I thought it'd be a fantastic job and for the first three or four years while I did all that and progress was made it was terrific the crowd were good everybody was supportive all of a sudden i got the manager's job and then I realised the hostility was there, and it didn't happen for me. And uh, the first game, would you believe, was against Ipswich. How'd you get on? Well, we we played unbelievably well. Ewan Roberts uh, did uh scored two goals for me, but the team were marvellous, and we we beat a very very talented Ipswich side two 0 and uh, I think if I hadn't won that much, I might not have got as long as I did with Norwich. But uh, as it went on, uh, Norwich were great, and Delia Smith and her husband were wonderful with me. I met a, a really nice man called Bob Cooper, who was the chairman. And uh, and I enjoyed my time there. But they didn't have a lot of money. Uh, they needed to change the squad. They needed to add to it, and the money wasn't there. There was hostility coming towards me. I just felt that maybe the players couldn't carry it. It was, wouldn't have been a problem for me. I left Norwich and it was one of those where it was almost we discussed it because I just felt that if the money wasn't there to the strengthen the side that the club the team would be affected by the, the 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 bits that were coming from the terraces. We couldn't win the matches we wanted. And I didn't want Delia and Norwich to suffer. I really didn't. I wanted them to be the club that they should have been. I brought Nigel Worthington to the club to help me coach in. Nigel stayed with the club and just after I left, they the sold some land so Nigel was allowed to have some money to spend on players and they went on to have a fantastic time so yes, it was great for me, I enjoyed it, I would I never regret it for one minute I met the lovely Delia Smith and her husband and Na- Nigel Worthington
1: stayed and took Norwich to a different level Okay, that that's the end of your uh, involvement with with the club football I know you also worked with the uh, Antigua and Barbuda Football Association a little later on. But in 2004, if I might true a handbrake turn here. Now, I don't know how strong your stomach is, but I'm going to read by notes I've been given here. Um, you um, you were involved in a lawnmower accident, and according to this, you. you nearly you lost your foot I mean I've got words here like mangled tendons and <laughs> arteries broken toes dislocations
0: no no well to be honest with you I did have a bad accident uh, there was no doubt about it I was actually going to do sky television and uh, I needed to cut my grass and I was on uh, I had to sit on more and I thought I knew the weather forecast it was going to rain so I thought I'll do some before I shoot off and I just went up and down the garden the rain come on and I spun round to come back and I've got a little brook a river runs around the house and with a slope down to it, mm-hmm. and with the ground being wet, it started to slide. Wow! And me still being very athletic, still mm-hmm. able to You're a very fit-looking man even now. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I thought I'll jump off, not a problem. But yeah. as I jumped off, my foot went underneath the moor, and it caught my foot. So it was it was bad at the time, and obviously I recovered no problem. But I met an angel. I met a lady called Elaine Sassoon. A surgeon in Norwich Hospital and she was fantastic and she fixed my foot up My my left foot which You still was, got all the bits have you? Well, it, it's better than the right foot now to be honest <laughs> with you. I need her again. But no no it was it was difficult. But at that time my wife was on was uh, was in the house so we got the, the ambulance there, it was all done. And as I say, Elaine Sassoon and her team were simply amazing.
1: Which takes us on to the present day. Um, we'll talk about it in, in the next section about what your own hopes are for the future. But I guess one of the things that you will be looking forward to is next summer. Um, we're doing this in the deep in the winter and the early months of 2016. And, um, you know, Michel Platini is getting plenty of gyp and quite rightly so for a number of things. But his, the way he opened up the qualification for the Euros, not only to make the qualifying tournament brilliant, but we had this amazing result with Wales and England. And and the Republic and Northern Ireland have qualified. And how excited are you about just seeing a Northern Ireland team at the top table of fo- European football again?
0: Well, it is good, and I'm glad they opened it out because it does give countries, small countries like Wales and Northern Ireland, although they've got some very talented players, a, a real opportunity of getting to the final stages. I think Michael O'Neill has done a wonderful job. And when you think about looking at the group, I think everybody thought maybe third, maybe fourth, maybe even fifth. They weren't sure at all. But he he started the campaign. They were a well-organised team. They, they haven't got what you would call a, a set of household names throughout the squad. Well, they haven't got the Bales and Ramses, have Absolutely. they? Absolutely. They've got some very good young players. I think uh, organised the back Evans. I think Davis has been super.
1: McGibbon. I think they've got a, a semblance of... Tw- and they've got somebody called Kyle Lafferty who doesn't play club football <laughs> but seems to be very good at international football. Well, he's a bit like... David Healy, if you remember yeah, David course, Healy yeah. went
0: through a very different kind of a period With clubs, he, he did okay But when he put on that green shirt He was phenomenal And he scored goals And I don't think his record will ever be beaten But I think Kyle Lafferty is a is a threat for Northern Ireland But there's that great spirit about the team I speak to Jerry because he does it on a regular basis And he talks about the spirit within the camp The spirit of the team And they've won games comfortably And deservedly So they're going to merit
1: to the Finals and you, it's fantastic. You managed Michael O'Neill, of course. He was one of your players. Was it? I mean, and you can be honest here. Was it anything about his demeanour that made you think this man can go on and coach and manage a football team? I actually didn't think that would happen because Michael was a very smart man, a very decent
0: man, a very hard worker, a terrific professional. And if you had to ask me what Michael would do, I thought he would have earned his living outside the game. Uh, I thought maybe a lawyer, uh, an accountant, or something like that. But a really nice man uh, and a solid professional and I think what he has done at Shamrock Rovers uh, before he got the Northern Ireland job, and certainly what he has done with Northern Ireland, and I think what has been good, the FA have stuck by him, because the last tournament wasn't terrific, and he did, he started off with uh, some negatives, and it wasn't happening, but it was never Michael's fault, it was all about getting together a group of players and building that spirit and character. The FA, the IFA, and the Northern Ireland FA stayed with him, which was to their credit, and they have now got the... A, a, a very good young manager who's done a tremendous job taking his group of players and supporters, which will make it fantastic, with uh, Ireland North and
1: South and France. It's going to be a wonderful summer. What's life like for you today? And uh, I can tell you're still very, very physically fit, man. Um, what are your hopes for the remainder of your time? Well, can I first
0: of all say thank you very much, Danny, for asking me
1: along. I've thoroughly enjoyed the programme.
0: Oh, thank and, you. And uh, it's been nice to share this this few uh, few hours with you. I've been very lucky in life and football and, and with my family life I, I have a wife called Colette very she's very dear I mean very expensive no I don't mean <laughs> that at all. She, my, Colette and I have been married 46 years wow and uh, we've got two children Danielle and uh, Gareth both married to Bonnie and Chris and they Gareth lives in Dubai and I've got four great uh, fantastic grandchildren Neve, Matteo Samson and Abraham good names yeah and I love visiting them playing with them And they keep me fit. So I've been lucky, not only professionally, but personally. So I'm delighted that uh, I'm keeping well and looking forward to many more years. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk
1: Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row?